Well, good morning. My name is Thomas. If I haven't met you, I'm associate pastor here at Gospel City. And we've been going through the Gospel of John together this year. And we are in John chapter 12 today. So if you have your Bibles or your phone, you can turn to it now. And uh, John chapter 12. And last week, Tanner did a great job of walking us through the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And this was a dead man, like way dead, days dead, and Jesus raises him to new life. And we see his Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, pleading for, for their brother to Jesus to come. And Jesus kind of takes his time, but he, he comes in purpose to raise him to new life. And so this morning in chapter 12, we see that they have a party in honor of Jesus. We all love parties, right? I mean, who, who loves a good party? Anybody? Everybody should be raising your hand. Everybody loves a good party. And so we, we, we find great excuses for parties, right? I mean, sure, we have birthdays and weddings and graduations and even kindergarten graduations. We have end of school parties, beginning of summer parties, end of summer parties, beginning of school parties. We have holiday parties. We even weather the 105 degree weather at the pool so that we could have a party, right? And so about a, uh, my son, he's, uh, my youngest son, he's two years old. So last year he turned one and that's kind of a big deal, right? And so over COVID, my kids decided they wanted to plan his party. We ran out of ideas to do, so they wanted to plan his party ahead of time. And so they came up with a theme, Curious George. They, they came up with decorations, a cake, what day we were going to do it on, what time. But then they amped it up, and they decided to do costumes. Yes, costumes. Do we have that picture? Oh, yes. It's right there. Um, so you got Luke. Uh, he's Curious George. We have Zeke down here as... Uh, Sharky the dog. We have the older two being the neighborhood kids. We have Rachel as uh, Professor Wiseman, and I got to be. That's right, the man with the yellow hat. That's my son right there. Zeke, good timing, buddy. But we do some extraordinary, extra, extravagant things because of the people that we love, right? And that's where we find Mary and Martha and Lazarus in this story. And so, with your Bibles, we'll start in verse 1 of chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And so... When Jesus came to Bethany the first time, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Well, that really incited the Pharisees and the crowd. They were chasing after him. The Pharisees wanted to kill him. And so he kind of retreated out of the city. And now he's back in Bethany. And Bethany is about two miles outside of Jerusalem. So he's getting really close because we're about to enter into the Easter week of John's gospel. And so it's all the events that lead up to the cross. And this chapter wraps up his ministry, and we launch into the second phase, or the the cross. Um, In verse 2, I I find it very interesting that 
it says Martha served. And Martha gets kind of a bad rap, right? If you know the story in Luke chapter 10 of Mary and Martha, Martha is over there trying to get everything ready, cleaned, serving uh, food to the people, and Mary is just sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Mary just wants to hear what Jesus has to say, and Martha gets mad. Martha's like, Jesus, make, make her do something. I'm over here slipping away, and, and she's just sitting there. And Jesus says, relax. Why don't you just come join us? I'm not going to be here forever. My presence isn't going to be here forever. And so I, I want you to be able to sit with us. There would be time to serve, but just sit. And so it's, it's funny that John brings that back up in, in the gospel here, that she was serving again. And then Lazarus is reclining at the table. I mean, can you imagine the party that this guy was dead for days, and now he's sitting at the table with you, eating food, and you're like, what is going on? I mean, it's a time to celebrate. So, verse 3. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she pours it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. We'll come back to this moment in a minute, but here's the tension of the story, right? I mean, Mary uses this expensive perfume to, on Jesus, and Judas is beside himself. He's mad that she would be pouring out so much money on his feet. Verse 7. Jesus replies to Judas, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. And you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. And so Jesus comes quickly to her defense, right? That and he even makes a, a statement that's a little odd if we look at it, because it kind of goes against all the teachings that he was giving, like to take care of the poor, take care of the orphan, the widow. But he's trying to make the, the point that he's not going to be here because they still haven't clued in that he's about to die. Verse 9. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And so the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. And see, so the crowd is, they're kind of like sensation seekers. They're looking for the show. They're running after Jesus, not because they want to know who Jesus is. They don't really want to know the truth. They just want to see a miracle. They want to see what all the talk is about. And so we see in this passage four different types of people that we can relate to. Now, we probably don't want to admit that we probably could relate to some of these people, but we can. The first is the crowd, the sensation seekers. They wanted to see the show, and then so they were chasing Jesus from town to town, and they just wanted to see, is Lazarus really alive? 
And then the Pharisees, they were scared at this point because they had, they realized that some of the Jews were really out realizing for themselves that Jesus was powerful. He was strong. He could do some amazing things. And maybe he really was God. And so they were scared that their way of life, their way of doing things was in jeopardy. And when we get scared that our way of life is in jeopardy, we react, right? It's human nature. And so the way the Pharisees were going to take care of it, they were going to kill Jesus and they were going to kill Lazarus. That'll fix everything, right? The next person is Judas. He was appalled by the extravagance of the gift, so much so that he shames Mary. He shames the gift. He shames the person. And this is a pretty easy trap for us to fall into if we're honest with ourselves. It's easy to, to shame a person or the gift and not seek after the truth. Because Judas sounded noble. I mean, taking care of the poor, noble, right? But his heart was really just for selfish gain. And it reminds us that we need to remember to check our hearts in situations before we speak. The next person is Martha. She, she gets a bad rap, right? Always doing, 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 never sitting at the feet of Jesus. But really, she was using what she knew, her gift of service, as a, a gift to Jesus of her gratitude for what he had done for her with raising her brother to new life. But sometimes, and what Jesus was trying to help Martha see back in Luke chapter 10, is that Jesus' presence is really all we need. And then we have Mary, who uses something of great extravagance to honor Jesus. She brought everything. I mean, probably a lifetime of savings for this perfume bottle. And you could... probably uh, argue that she probably didn't really understand what she was doing. Like She probably didn't know that she was anointing Jesus. Maybe she did. But she was expressing her gratitude to Jesus for what he had done. And so what does anointing mean? We don't really do that a whole lot now, but in this particular instance in ancient Israel, it meant to set apart something for a specific work. You know, kings and priests were most often anointed during this time for a specific role. And Mary knows, or Mary anoints Jesus for a specific role, that he's about to walk into Jerusalem and die a death for us. And so we're going to look at three ways, three things anointing reveals about Jesus this morning. The first is, he is king of kings. So kings were anointed for their service for, to the people. And the first king of Israel was Saul. And so um, God really didn't want to anoint a king at this time. He had a leader. His name was Samuel. He was doing a good job. But the people of Israel wanted, some, wanted a king, right? They saw this nation over here have a king, this nation have a king, this nation have a king. They had kind of king FOMO, right? They, were, they felt like they were missing out on something with the king. And so God gave them a king. And so he sends Samuel to anoint Saul as the first king 
of Israel. In 1 Samuel 10, it tells us that Samuel takes a flask of olive oil and pours it on the head and says, The Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance. A few chapters later, he does it again because Saul wasn't living up to to being a king, and so he anoints David. Same thing, olive oil poured on his head to set him apart for a specific work. And Mary uses perfume on Jesus as this anointing, this extravagant gift of gratitude to, to a king. The scripture says that it was a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. And nard was from a plant, from the Himalayan mountains. And so that's quite a bit of ways from Israel. And so you can imagine how hard it was, it was to probably harvest this perfume and to, for it to travel across lands to, to land up in Israel. So it was hard. It was hard to get. It was expensive. And according to verse 5, it was worth 300 denarii. And for the working, average working man, they would make one denarii a day. So we're looking at about a, a year's wage of perfume. What Mary used to anoint King Jesus was probably a lifetime of savings for her. And this perfume, it could be used for cosmetic purposes. It could be used for um, taking care of the body, for burial, for, for brides, for a wedding to anoint kings and priests, and it would have been considered a wonderful gift to a king. And she gives it to Jesus, not because he comes in this military power as king, no, because she was grateful for, for Jesus saving her brother. This was an act of gratitude. And kings, Jesus comes as king in stark contrast to what the world saw as kings, right? This is the Roman Empire. Kings were emperors. They were Caesars. They were great and mighty. They went to conquer the land. Jesus doesn't do this. But the Jews wanted him to, right? The Jews wanted this kind of military leader. They wanted Israel to be the next superpower, but he comes quietly as a servant king. In ancient Israel, the king represented God to the people, right? So God represents you, kind of a conduit, right, of this is who God is through the king. But Jesus comes as the actual king, not a representation of the king. He is the king. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He came to usher in the Old Testament law, to fulfill it, to offer a better way to know God. Anointed by this servant Mary, a woman of no social standing. She was a nobody. But Jesus came to rescue her and people like her, his people. So he's king of kings, but he's also a priest. He's the great high priest. And priests were anointed in Jewish history as well. And as we've read through the Gospel of John, we have seen Jesus act as priest to the people around him. I mean, he was just priest to, to Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And he would, 
he, he prayed for people, he healed people, he listened to people, and he pointed them to himself as Savior. In ancient Israel, the king represented God to the people, but the, while the priest represented the people to God. So it was this two-way. Jesus comes to replace two roles of God to, to the people and the people back to God. Jesus came not just as a better king to us, but a better priest for us. Say that again. Jesus came not just as a better king to us, but a better priest for us. The book of Hebrews tells us what it means for Jesus to be our priest, the true and better priest. The priest of Israel, well, they were sinful, right? I mean, they're just like every other person on planet Earth. They were sinful people. And so when they went to do sacrifices for the people, they had to sacrifice for themselves, not just for the people. But Jesus offers us a, a person who lived the life we can't live, so he lives a sinless life, so he doesn't have to make a sacrifice for himself. He was the sacrifice for us. Hebrews 4, you don't have to turn there, it'll be on the screen, but says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. That's good news. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. You see, the good news from Hebrews is that we do have a high priest that doesn't stay in the temple like the priest of old, but one that came after us. He enters into humanity, lived the life we can't live, and would die the death that we deserve. We have Jesus who can empathize with our weakness, with our sin, because he has lived and been tempted just like us. Dane Ortland uh, has a great book, Gentle and Lowly, Highly recommend. It's a great read. You're going to have to read it really slow, but it shows us the heart of Jesus through these Gospels and through Hebrews. And his, his quote says, on Hebrews, it says, Empathize here is not cool and detached pity. It is a depth of felt solidarity, such as is echoed in our lives most closely only as parents to children. I mean, if you're a parent, you understand when, you know, when my two-year-old falls down and scrapes himself and is bleeding or breaks an arm, like, I'm going to grab him and I'm going to hold him. I'm going to feel all the feels that he's feeling because I, I don't want him to be hurt. Or maybe you have a teenage kid or an adult child and they make a bad decision or in a bad way and having to live through some hard circumstances because of, because of that situation you're going to feel all those feels you want something better for them that's what he's talking about but then he says indeed it is even it is deep, deeper even than that in our pain jesus is pained in our suffering he feels the suffering as his own even though it's not not that his invincible divinity is threatened but in the sense that his heart is feeling drawn into our distress. His human nature engages, engages our troubles comprehensively. His is a love that cannot be held back when he sees his people in pain. See, Dane 
Ortland and the writer of Hebrews, he's, they're, they're taking us by the hand and leading us into the true heart of Christ, showing us that Christ is with us. Hebrews 16 finishes this thought and says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, because we know he's the great high priest, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The good news, we have access to God because Jesus came to be the great high priest. It also shows his, his desire to, to, to sit with us when we're in heartache and sit with us when we're in joys. He's patient and gentle with us. And so he's the, the great high priest. And the last one is that he came as the perfect Passover lamb. I didn't realize this, but lambs were anointed on the hooves and the ankles in ancient Israel for Passover as part of the testing to make sure they were without blemish. And Mary would anoint Jesus here on the feet and wipe them with her hair as a setting apart for his purpose on earth. And there were several different types of sacrifices in ancient uh, Israel other than Passover. And, some, and they were burned on the altar to God, including grain. So like their harvest, they would put the first part of their harvest on the altar and they would burn it or animal sacrifices. And when these were burned by the priest, the smoke of that offering would, would fill the temple, but it would also spill out into the surrounding areas. In verse 3... Mary using the, the perfume, it says, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It's kind of a cool tie-in with what those people would have known. It was something that all Jews in the room would have identified with, but for some reason, they weren't. They weren't seeing the symbolism. But Mary was preparing the ultimate and final sacrifice to atone for our sin. Passover, if you remember, comes from Exodus. It's when God calls Moses out of the desert and says, Hey, I need you to go to Egypt, and I need you to set my people free. Y'all remember this down here? Y'all remember the story? Yeah. And so he goes, you know, go talk to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And Pharaoh would say, no. Try that again. What did Pharaoh say? No. no. And so what did he do? He sent all these different plagues to the, to the people of Egypt. And so the first one was turning the river Nile, their life source, into blood and killing all the fish in it. And so he goes back to Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, my God is powerful. Let my people go. And Pharaoh says, No. And he does this over and over and over and over again. I mean, frogs, gnats, flies, there's all kinds of crazy plagues. And the last one, he says, I'm going to kill all the firstborn in the land. And Pharaoh doesn't believe it. He says, I'm not letting your people go. And so God tells Moses, go back to your people. Go back to the Jews and tell them what's going on. And that they need to go find the perf- the, uh, a lamb to sacrifice, and I want them to take it out 
into the streets and, and slaughtered in the streets, and, but not to break any of the bones of the, of the lamb. And then I want you to take the, the blood of the lamb and I want you to paint the doorposts of your homes. And then I want you to roast that lamb and I want you to eat that lamb together as a family in remembrance that I am going to be faithful and I will always be faithful to you. That's the Passover. And Jesus, he comes to do the same thing, living the perfect life without blemish, dying a very public death, and none of his bones would be broken in the process. And it's because of his death, those who place their faith and trust in his work are covered by his blood for eternity. Earlier, we, we, in the study of John, we, we saw that John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God. In John 1.29, he said, The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm sure people were kind of like, I don't see a lamb. But John knew who Jesus was. He, he knew Jesus came to be the final and perfect Passover lamb. So that eternal death would pass over each of us who put our trust and faith in him. We learned about this. Our students learned about this this summer at camp, right? In Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, it says, But because of his great love for us, this is his love, that he died this death, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. His sacrifice is the perfect Passover lamb made us alive with Christ. Nothing that we've done, but by the grace of Christ, you have been saved. And you don't have to do anything. It's a free gift. But he does ask, just like Mary, just to respond out of gratitude for what he has done. So what is our response this morning as we finish up? I mean, how do we respond to this anointed Jesus? So as the band comes, just a few thoughts for us. I mean, do we respond like the crowd who just is chasing after the fantastical, the mystical parts of Jesus and not really seeking after the truth of who he is, the sacrifice that he gave us? Do we respond like Judas, who was appalled, right, and tried to be noble, but shames Mary for her gift? To why being so extravagant and such in using such an expensive perfume? But really, when it comes down to it, when we look at Judas, it was just selfish ambition. Or do we respond like Martha, who was preparing the, and serving the food, but she missed out on just the simple presence of Jesus in the room and, and, and for her life? I mean, we probably can relate to that. We are so busy. Our culture is so busy, right? We've got so many things to do that we're just distracted. 
And that, it's hard for us to take time just to sit and be quiet with Jesus. You see, Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, it, it demands a response from us of gratitude and worship. And it can be in song. We did that this morning, right? We're singing songs to Jesus. We're about to do it again. And it helps remind us of who he is and what he's done for us. It reminds, we get to remind each other of who he is. And we're just saying thank you, right, of who he is. But it's also an extraordinary and ordinary gifts of time, talent, and resources. And time is, is probably the one that I was struggling with this week because it's, it's the busyness, right? We all get caught up into the busyness of it all. But to slow down and enjoy who Jesus is in our lives. And that looks like reading scripture, reading the book of John. I mean, maybe you only get a, a verse or two in, but you're, you're pulling out the truth of those, that verse. Maybe you're, you're reading a whole story or a whole chapter. Maybe, it, you know, it also looks like praying going before him and asking him to do things in our lives or be somebody, be the God that he says he is in our lives and thanking him for who he is. And it's also our talents, right? It's, it's going and God has gifted all of us with certain things. Maybe you love people and you love greeting and so you're a greeter out there. Maybe you love... Um, teaching the word of God, and so you're out, you're, in the, you're back there with kids, anchoring their hearts to the truth of the gospel. I mean, using our talents to further the gospel, or our resources. And don't worry, it's not a, a giving talk, but y'all do this great, right? I mean, a couple of weeks ago, we had an Embrace Grace mom move from a, a shelter to her first apartment, and she had nothing. We put the needs up on a, a social media post, and she has a bed, a, a dining room table, a couch. She has a baby, so all the things that the baby needs, all the food, like, y'all just make it happen. It's amazing. That's leveraging our resources for the gospel. You know, Mary gave everything that she had, right? And... It's, it's a hard thing for us in the Western world to really wrap our minds around this because a, a, a pint of pure nard was, this, was, this is a pint, 1.05. It's quite a bit of perfume that she pours out on Jesus. But she gave everything that she had. She probably don't, I mean, she doesn't have savings accounts. You know, this was probably for her wedding one day. Um, she is so thankful that she wants to respond to Jesus, that she just pours out the whole thing and wipes his feet in gratitude. And for us, that's a hard thing to give away, you know, everything that we own, basically. But he's at, God's asking really for our hearts. That's what he's trying to say. That he wants all of our heart, all of our life, 
in worship and response to him. And we don't bring these gifts to earn salvation. These responses are not out of selfish ambition, but they're out of gratitude to a gentle and gracious Savior who is patient with us.